Hello and welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and I'm really excited to be here today with Vin Ryan, an Australian artist and facilitator and teacher for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander visual art for the Kangan Institute in Melbourne. Welcome, Vin. Hi, Kathy. <laughs> so excited to talk to you today. So I wanted to start off because I was perusing your website last night. Mm-hmm. And um, what would you describe as the driving force behind your creativity? Um, I guess I'm interested in ordinary, everyday things and trying to make them beautiful. So mm-hmm. um, my kids always say that I'm fascinated by boring things like rubbish and um, just things you find on the street. Um, and I guess I am. <laughs> yeah. like to sort of um, transform it into something that's beautiful. Yeah. What is your attraction to handwritten notes? Because I noticed there was a section where you had collected what looked like um, notes between people, also letters. One of them looks like a kind of like a breakup letter, but also yeah. the signs and placards that people um, hold up on the street sometimes when they want to interact you know, with the public and, and yeah. receive money or help or assistance in some way. Yeah. That sort of started with um, uh, I just walk, I have a habit of walking between my house and my studio and collecting something. It can be anything. It can be a photograph. It can be a handwritten note. It can be just one thing. And then, then when I get to my studio, I'll, I'll stick it up on the wall uh, as a sort of starting point for creativity. And over a period of time, I noticed that, when people came to my studio, they'd walk past my artwork and, and look at these notes instead. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe they're artworks too. Yeah, so that's that's where it really started and then it kind of snowballed into a, um, a book and I've exhibited the, the notes um, in various group shows as, as well and I sort of try and turn them into conversations with other artworks. Yeah, it all, when I was reading them, it almost felt like a play, like a theater piece mm. in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, there was a good deal of sort of human drama there. Sure. Know? Yeah. Sure, and it's it's a bit like the paperless office. You know, it's it's interesting to me that people still send each other handwritten notes. Uh, there's an element of that too. Yeah. Um, when we could just text each other or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's a something. There's a, a a beautiful sort of analog quality to. It. Yeah. No, I I still do that. I still. We'll do handwritten thank you notes. Mm. I mean, I'll do internet ones too, where I insert, I have like thank you graphics that I've created and I'll insert them. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and every year I create a couple new ones. But no, I like the, there's something about that tangible, you know, you're writing the note and you're thinking about it and then you, you know, go to post it. It's like a whole process that makes you feel very connected to whomever mm. you're sending it to. Yeah. Are there artists um, that have inspired you in your art making? Uh, so my the artists that I really like um, tend to be interested in ordinary things too. So people like Ed Richet, for example. Right. He's a great hero of mine. Or there's an Australian artist, Robert Rooney, who who's, has some similarities with Ed Richet. Right. Um, in that they, they, they like really, really ordinary things and they're fascinated by, by the ordinary. Yeah, sometimes streetscapes, I noticed that. In your photography, is there like an essence or something that you're trying to, I mean, I know you spoke about ordinary things, but is there something you're looking to capture in particular with your photography? 
Not in particular. I try and use the medium that's going to what I'm trying to express best. So photography, I think, often just crystallises at moment. So I'm less interested in the landscape itself as, uh, than I am in, in, that, in a moment. So it's a combination of light and the, the situation often, particularly if there's a figure, the person in the photograph. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of truth. I guess the truth to materials in a way of thinking about you know, any, any given situation. Sometimes I'll, I'll draw off it if I think it's, it's, it's appropriate and sometimes I'll take photographs. Yeah, we'll definitely put your website, if you don't mind, on our social sure. media so that our audience can access it if they wish. Um, sure. One of the things I loved, the the domestic scenes with your kids, and there, oh, was, yes. there was one scene of you on the couch where you were completely surrounded by laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welcome just, to my world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that immediate connection that I'm sure a lot of people can uh you know a lot of my female friends just say that um it's just me as a male trying to um to show that I can do the laundry (laughs) (laughs) well kudos for that so I wanted to talk a little bit about your work with aboriginal artists um what got you interested in doing that um I thought that's something I've always wanted to do and in Australia, there's a real disconnect between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. I grew up in the area that I grew up in, Melbourne. I don't think I met an Indigenous person until I was 17 or 18. I mean, I probably did, but didn't know. Right. So there's a real disconnect and there's um, most people in Melbourne wouldn't necessarily know any Aboriginal words or have met many Aboriginal people. So um, it's partly driven by that. I, I, it just seems an odd situation in Australia. Part of that is to do with just the, the size of Australia. Mm-hmm. I think the, uh, the Indigenous population is about th- uh, 2 to 3% of the population that's spread out in a lot of remote areas. Right. So I, it's, it was partly about that, just wanting to connect with Indigenous culture more than I had and to take some ownership of that. But also it's, I love teaching art. I've, I've taught art for uh, at university and higher education level for about 25 years right and I'd had similar types of students and I, I just wanted to set myself a new challenge I know a couple of people who've worked in prisons and it's it just always sounded like a really um, fascinating area to get into as well right because you're also facilitating art programs for indigenous students at Ravenhall or Ravenhall and Port Phillip prisons yes yeah, so one's a medium security and one's a maximum security prison oh okay I've actually been reading a little bit about the Indigenous population of Australia, and I know I think there is a move to be more inclusive and to give them a voice in government. And I was wondering how, you know, obviously your students are aware of that when they're making art. And yes, and but art is also kind of an identity building process. So yes. kind of what's the first day like when you're teaching? What are you trying to communicate with your students to get them to open up? Well, the, the first thing before anything else, as a non-Indigenous person, the first thing is to build some trust and to, to let them know that they're in charge. My role is as a facilitator to show them some skills that I've learned over a long period of time to do research search for them if they need to. Um, so, for example, it's not uncommon for a student to... Um, discover that they've got Indigenous heritage right. when they get into prison because all sorts of records come up that weren't available to them before. And then we'll find out where they're from. Um, we'll find out what mob, what we call mobs. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll, then I'll, I'll give them a whole lot of information about what totems they might like to reference, what sort of mark making and that sort of thing um, they might want to be interested in, in, in learning about. 
Right. So when you say mobs, is, is that the group yeah. that they belong to? And, and then each group has specific totems and artwork? Yeah. So Australia before colonization had about mm-hmm. about 300 different languages. It's a bit, it's a bit like um, Europe, I suppose, mm-hmm. modern day Europe. It has lots of little countries. Right. Uh, with some similarities. Mm-hmm. It's extremely diverse culture. Um, so a lot of right. my time is just finding out where people are from um, and then connecting them to culture um, in any way that they they want me to. And there's a, a team of Aboriginal workers who I partly work for and um, they help me with, with any difficult question, cultural questions along the way. Got it. Got it. So there's, so there's things like um, there's women's business and men's business sometimes. Mm. Um, there's kind of certain um, areas that I won't go into. Right. Are your classes men and women together or No, at the moment they're all they're all men. Ah, oh I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So what's it like for you as an artist to witness and, you know, aid in this process of self discovery? Um, it's one of the most rewarding or at least the most rewarding jobs I've ever had because it feels like a real privilege to be in that space. And it's an area that my students really love to come to. And so they've, you know, I don't really encounter any hostility um, that you would encounter if, if, say, you were a correctional, corrections officer. Right. They're really, really looking forward to coming. And we generally just have a really great time. And it's, you know, it's, in my years of teaching, it's the only teaching job I've had where there's, on one level, there's a, 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 a lot of respect that I get from students. Right. Um, but on another level, um, they make fun of me all the time. Um, and I really love that. Um, there's a, an Aboriginal term for a white man is a gubba, mm-hmm. um, which is a very dismissive term. Ah. It's a very disrespectful term. Is it G-A-B-B-E-R? G-A-B-B-A, gubba. G-A-B-A, yeah. oh, gubba? So they call, they call me Uncle Gubba. Um, and <laughs> uncle, <laughs> uncle's a very respect, respectful term and gubba's right. a very disrespectful term. That sort of sums up um, right. our relationship with them. <laughs> right. It's always there's that kind of dichotomy there. Yeah. So what have you learned about yourself in your work with Aboriginal artists who are incarcerated? Probably the main thing is I've just realised how little, um, it's embarrassing really how little I knew about Aboriginal culture. Um, living on Aboriginal land and just not knowing some really simple things about Aboriginal culture. Is it taught generally in the history of your country? Like if you're studying art in Australia, would you, you know, are there just courses in Aboriginal art or? There probably are more now. Um, I mean, when I went through primary school, high school, you know, six years of art school without learning a single thing about Aboriginal culture. Right. Nick, you're not a single thing. So you have to make a special effort kind of to seek out the knowledge or you did at the time? I did at the time, yeah. It's it's. There's been a bit of a renaissance um, burst of energy, I suppose, in Australia in terms of learning more about Aborig- Aboriginal culture. Mm-hmm. And it really started uh, in 2007 with um, the Prime Minister at the time issued an, apology, an official apology right. to Aboriginal people. Right. I did read about that. Yeah. And that's, that has really energised people. And it, the one thing that that you will notice if you come to Australia now is any even small meeting, gathering, anywhere at a school or a council will start with an acknowledgement of country. Yes, I noticed that actually. I think I saw that on your website maybe too. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, and my, probably my email as well, yeah. Yes, yeah. that's where, yeah. And that's actually something that is popular where I live in California. 
Um, it became more popular during the pandemic, but it seemed during the pandemic, all Zoom meetings would start with an acknowledgement of um, territory of Indigenous people. Maybe COVID's had something to do with it, sort of rethink on all sorts I of things. So. Too. I, I definitely think so. Yeah. So well, how do you feel about the arts as a sort of a healing process? Do you feel like they can heal the divisions that I've just been reading about in your country or even globally? Just worldwide. I think in, in Australia at the moment, within uh, the, the, the art that my students tend to mm-hmm. um, produce. And by the way, I, don't, I never call them prisoners. I know here at PAC we call them clients. Oh, yes. Okay. Students, are, I tend to call them just artists. <laughs> yeah, that's probably better. Actually. That, <laughs> yeah. Artists is probably better than students because they're not really my students. I'm a facilitator more than a teacher right. in a way. Um, but, yeah, um, and I never ask them for their prison number. Right. I ask for their name. Right. I was just asking you how you felt about the healing powers of art in terms of healing divisions that are societal, both in your country and you know, globally and definitely in my country. Yeah, I'm really torn about that because on the one hand, even the act of painting, mm-hmm. I notice that um, when the guys are uh, sitting at tables and painting, after a while they start to talk about things, they start to open up a bit Yeah, and talk about their families and things like that. And it's, I think it's just the, the act of um, being focused somewhere else right. and doing something that allows them <laughs> yeah. to open up, open up in a way that perhaps they wouldn't do if they were sitting around in a circle and being grilled by a clinician. So in that way, I think, yes, there's there's real healing powers. But in another way, mm-hmm. I'd love the guys that I work with to have the opportunity to express their anger more and to make right. political art and to question the system that they're in more. I think um, there's a danger when you're, you're doing therapeutic art that you're silencing them in some sort of way. Yeah. You're sort of placating them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Making them more compliant, more, more compliant prisoners, or something. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I always struggle with, um, and it's one of the reasons I've, I've wanted to come to the US to talk to a variety of people about um, their approaches to that. Right. Yeah. Now we're excited that you're coming and uh, looking forward to the exchange. So, do you? Do the, is their art sold in a particular way? Do you, are they exposed to the market at all? Are you sort of a? How does that work? Yeah. So, so everyone in the prison is um, any anybody with Indigenous heritage is is able to sell their artwork through an organisation called the Torch, and the participants get one hundred percent of the money. The Torch also they stretch their canvases, they document them, um, they advertise their work, uh, but also when they get out, there'll be Torch people who go and visit them and give them more canvas and paints and things like that. Uh, is that a non-profit or a government thing? Or Yes, it's a, it's a non-profit thing. It's mostly a really fantastic thing because it means that they might have gotten out of the prison without any money. They've got, you know, $1,000 in their account to get them started. Or in some cases, there's some artists who are doing really well mm-hmm. who have forged a career as an artist as a result. Got it. So some of them, I'm quite jealous of some of them, have got some, you know, twenty or $30,000 in their account from art sales. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the art market can be really lucrative. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, yes, and the, and the Aboriginal art market is a, is a big market. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why we're able to run the programs, because within the Australian system, or particularly in Melbourne, where I'm from, the education programs have to demonstrate some kind of vocational outcome. 
you need to be able you need to be able to demonstrate that it's which which is uh, which I really hate. I, I think there's other aspects of education, of course, that you know that, that are really integral. Go on, um, but we can demonstrate that fairly easily with um, with Aboriginal students because the Aboriginal art market is a global market and it's uh, you know multi multi million dollar market. Yeah, and are the students aware? I mean, are there well known collectors either locally or internationally that they're aware of, or are they working and then the, they just sort of release the art into the torch market and then? No. So part of the course that they do with me is um, about introducing them to a whole lot of Aboriginal artists that, that they mightn't have seen before, mm-hmm. but also introducing them to aspects of um, the art market more generally that they might not know about, and particularly introducing them to Aboriginal galleries right. and the way the system works and things like that. Oh, okay. So they even do, they even do things like I'll show them how to apply for a grant or those sorts of things. So it's set up like a vocational course. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, because there is a sort of tension, though, between you know, making art for the market and kind of making it because you're learning something about yourself and yes. expressing something about yourself. Yeah. So how do you help students deal with that kind of conflict? Okay, so the most common thing that I'll find is that somebody with no um, knowledge of art or somebody who hasn't done a painting before will think that they'll just paint an animal and put dots around it. They'll be able to get some money in their account. So there is that issue, I suppose. Mm. And then we have to slow down and say, in Melbourne and southeastern Australia, Aboriginal artists don't really use dots. Um, it's a whole different. Um, mm. um, if they wanted to do tr- a tr- traditional Aboriginal mark making, um, but also, so we generally spend a bit of time just sitting down with them and talking about where they're from, trying to establish much more of a personal connection. But also, just in most cases, I'll say to them, well, if the outcome is that you want to sell your work, you're more likely to do it if it's got some kind of personal, unique storytelling to it, anyway. Right. So that, I guess that's a starting point. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a compromise. But I guess in some ways, as artists, we're we're always compromised to some degree. We're all having to deal within the system. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And I imagine, too, that you run across students who put a lot of themselves into their work to the point where they don't want to let it go, you know? Yeah, sure, sure. And a lot of students, I'm sure I'm sure it's the same way you are, who right. are more driven by sending work home to family. There's so many reasons that we make art, isn't there? Totally. Yeah, I'm making art for the first time after a long time of not making it because I've been in school and I'm still in school. But Mm-hmm. Um, you always think about, you know, every time you sit down with the blank materials. Okay. I always feel like I have so many things that I want to say that it's hard to focus mm-hmm. on one thing. And I sort of imagine that maybe your students might be the same way as their discovery process progresses. Mm. Yeah. My answer to that is always to do several things at once. <laughs> <laughs> to multitask. Yeah. <laughs> And so sometimes I'll get, they'll do that, you know, they'll, while they're waiting for a painting to dry, they'll be doing some drawing. There's practicalities too. There's been, they've been locked down so much mm-hmm. over the last year because of COVID. Right. I've been encouraging a lot of guys to do watercolors, pencil drawings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Things that can be, that, that they can do in their, you know, fine cell. Got it. And watercolor lends itself to doing three or four things at once. No, it does. I've actually been working in watercolors recently myself. Yeah, right. So what would you describe as the most challenging part of your job? Probably the most challenging part would be just the big ugly machine that is a prison, you know, mm. just, just dealing with trying to get everyone on the same page is, is one of my biggest challenges, probably my biggest challenge. And so, for example, you might get something like you might just establish a really great rapport, a bunch of students and then a, um, a correctional officer, an old school correctional officer will come in and bark some instructions and just mess with the whole atmosphere of, or something like that, you know. So it, that's that's been my biggest frustration and that's 
when you get a, a correction officer who's really generous and an understanding of what you're doing, you really hold on to them. Right. No, I actually, and I'm sorry, I probably should have been more clear. Mm. <laughs> what I meant was the most challenging part of working with Indigenous artists. Oh, okay. In terms of in terms of what you've learned about yourself, what because you are you're not a member of the indigenous population, but you have a lot of knowledge about it. But you know, there's often historical tensions that come into play, and mm -hmm. you know, elements of power relations and whatnot. So I'm just curious if there's a challenging aspect just to that particular situation that you're in. Yeah. So uh, I guess it doesn't happen very often, but you'll get uh, a student who's resistant to learning anything from a white man. And that's completely fine. I think what, often what happens is you just build some trust over time. Sometimes it might take a couple of months. Uh, normally it doesn't take that long, though, because you let them do their own thing for a little while. Also, I do a lot of painting demonstrations and drawing demonstrations, partly just to show them that I do have some skills that they could learn if they, if they want to. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm really careful rather than saying things to actually to do things to so to be working with paint. And so, with with those type of people, I won't give them any instructions, right? Because it's not what they want. It's absolutely perfectly mm -hmm. understandable and reasonable for them to not want me to um give them any advice. How do you do that? How do you build trust? Um, there's other ways of facilitating, you know, just by right. interacting, just by working with materials. I'll cut them some gotcha. canvas. I'll give them some extra resources, accesses to some books if they mm -hmm. want it, and just work slowly. And we always start with a coffee. Nothing happens without coffee. Right. right. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just, it's, I guess it's a conversation, um, but it's not necessarily always a verbal conversation. And are, are you also teaching them general art history, you know, the canon or whatever you want to call it? Is there any of that that gets in there as well? Yeah, so we do. It's, it's a very informal thing, though. So we'll do things like, for example, I get them to write about their work mm -hmm. as a starting point. So we're sort of introducing literacy by stealth. Right. A lot of, there's quite a few guys. There's some guys that I have have never been to school, mm -hmm. not even primary school. And some guys who are, might feel a bit of shame about their literacy not being very good. So we, we always start off by um, talking about the work informally first and then gradually we introduce some writing. Yeah. No, writing will definitely bring it out. And the art history side of things, I suppose, it's obviously very um, Aboriginal focused, but we look at, it, it just depends because it's, it's such a diverse community. Right. Some students really, really want to know about the Western European canon as well. So I hit the classes small enough that we can do that on an individual basis as well. That's great. That's great. So what would you describe then as the most rewarding part of the whole process? The people, the prison system is in lots of ways is a horrible system, but I'm really amazed by the amount of fantastic people that you meet. Not just the people in the prison, the staff members, our teaching staff and some correctional officers. And yeah, just in general, I think you meet some really fabulous people that are um, caring and have a genuine passion for making the world better. Well, that is true. In my short time with PAC, I have definitely met some of those people. So as you know, our podcast is broadcast inside of some California correctional institutions. So I was wondering you had any words of advice for someone on the inside who feels like they have a creative urge or spirit inside of them, but isn't sure how to get it out into the world. Gee, <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah, you know, for tapping into that creativity that you know is there, sometimes 
it kind of prods you, but you don't know what to do about it? Yeah, I guess um, what I tend to say to my students is just draw. Drawing is the starting point for so many things, and particularly in the prison situation where everything is so regulated. Um, regulated, thank you. <laughs> drawing is one of those things that you can do on a regular basis. Just do, even if it's only five minutes of drawing a day, it's just, it's very much like building a muscle. And the more you draw, the more sort of ideas start to flow. And particularly in sort of situations where, let's say, a bunch of guys are just playing cards and you can just be in the corner just doing some little drawings. Right. I think that's often where, um, where some of the most creative things start to happen. Yeah. It's the action, you know, it's the physical action of drawing, I think, where ideas start to come. And it can take a little while, but... But it's just a regular action of drawing and pushing through and where ideas start to come out, I think. So that's probably my advice. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, that's great. I think that's great advice. I was just going to say it's almost like the more you draw, the more you see. Mm. Um, the act of drawing, trying to capture your surroundings actually kind of trains your eye and your brain to start looking for things in a particular way, I think, and then translating it to your hand <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a form of meditation too, isn't it? It is. Yeah, a type of mindfulness. I'm not very good at drawing, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a form of meditation to be sure. Well, um, Vin, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Kathy. Um, yeah, I've, I've really learned a lot and what you do is very, very inspiring. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you in the future and sure. learning about maybe we can talk again when you've taken some of your ideas back home. Sure. I can't wait to come to California to meet you, meet you guys. Yeah. We're looking forward to meeting you too. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by the Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at Cal Poly Humboldt and at three CSU campuses, San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.